Okay, we are going to continue our little mini-series called Sexuality, Marriage, and the Bible. And uh, we're going to start today in Genesis chapter 1, and um, we're going to begin in verse 26. Before we do, let me just review real quick what we talked about last week and why that's important. We are doing a series that's very, very relative to today and our society and what we are facing not only as Christians, but even in the workplace and the things that are going on. And one of the things that I mentioned last week, and I want to make sure that everybody is reminded of, our mini-series, which will probably last a couple more weeks, is not intended to be an exhaustive study of this topic. There's no way that we can address every single issue and aspect of this topic in just a few short lessons. So our goal is to teach and to learn some Bible principles that will guide us as we make decisions about these areas of our life. I'll give you a great example. The four questions that were asked in our Bible Answers for Life's questions that spawned this study are these four questions. Number one, is it okay to live together before we get married? Now, my assumption is that that's not asking, is it okay to have a roommate? My assumption is, that is, is it okay if we have sex before we get married? Okay? Um, and that, so that, that, both of those questions, by the way, can be answered from these principles. Alright? Number two, why are we so hard on homosexuals? And we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that actually next week. We're gonna begin to talk a little bit more specific about some of those things. Question number three, the men in the Bible had more than one wife, why can't I? And I can tell you one reason why you'd ask that question, you ain't never had one. <laughs> That's why. Uh, however, however, uh, the other question was similar to that. The men in the Bible had wives and concubines. How come we can't have them? Okay. So those are the four questions that were asked. What I want to do is I want to give you Bible principles. I want to teach you what God says so you can answer those questions yourself. By the way, I'm not going to give you the answer to the question. I'm going to tell you what God says. You've got to answer those questions yourself. Because the truth is, I can sit here and tell you, but if you don't believe that what God says is the truth, you're still going to do what you want to do. And you're going to do and tell other people to do whatever you think. So what I think is not really important. So I'm going to teach us what God says, and then you and I have the responsibility before God to make our own choices. Romans 14:12 says, "So then, every one of us will give an account of himself to God." So, you ultimately, like I, have to answer to God one day for all of my decisions anyway. You know the great part about that? I don't have to answer for one decision you make. You make all the bonehead decisions you want, and I ain't going to have to answer for you not one time. The problem with that is I'm probably going to make more bonehead decisions than you do, and for those, I've got to answer for every single one of them. So, that's what I want. I want to give you tools, scripturally, to use so you can make right decisions. All right? Now, last week, we looked at two basic things. Number one, what is God's standard of right and wrong? What is the Bible view of right and wrong? And it ultimately comes down to one thing. The Bible is God's standard of right and wrong. Period. That's it. Doesn't matter what I think. Doesn't matter what you think. By the way, it doesn't matter what everybody around us thinks. The Bible 
is God's standard of right and wrong. And here's the point. No matter what topic we talk about, if I do not believe the Bible is the final authority for right and wrong, we will have no common ground to have any kind of profitable discussion. Because you're going to argue your thoughts, I'll argue mine, and it's your opinion against mine, which at the end of the day accomplishes and means nothing. Try going into a courtroom and arguing with a judge what you think. Doesn't work. Well, you know, Judge, I think that that cop who gunned me at 128 miles an hour, just because I'm a NASCAR driver, I think his gun was off. Try that. See if it works. It don't work. Okay? There is a standard of right and wrong. So, that's what we want to do. So, God's standard of right and wrong is the Bible. Period. So, that's all we're interested in. What does the Bible say? The second thing we looked at last week is there are two game plans for my life. Satan has a game plan for my life. But so does God. Satan's game plan, we saw, was to kill, to steal, and to destroy. As a roaring lion, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. Jesus told Peter Satan wanted to get him so he could sift him like wheat. So basically, Satan's game plan is to get my attention, to get my allegiance, to get me on his side, and then rip me apart. And he's doing it to human beings every day. However, on the other side is God. What is God's plan for my life? Jesus said in the same passage in John 10, The thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul taught the Philippian church that we need to increase in knowledge and discernment so that we can learn how to discern what is best in our life. God's will in Romans 12, 2 is perfect. God wants what's best for my life. In Romans 8, 28, he says that all things work together for good to those that love God. The word good there is the Greek word that means to the benefit of. So Satan's plan is to rip my life apart and make me miserable and ultimately kill me. God's plan is to give me abundant life, full of joy, full of strength, with what is best and most beneficial for me. Now, if I had two portfolios, one with Satan's signature on it and his game plan, and one with God's signature and his game plan, which one would you want? Well, only if you are totally out of your mind would you choose Satan's. And he knows that. So you know what he does? He makes the outside of his portfolio look just like the outside of God's. So that you will pick His accidentally. Because if it looked like His, He knows you'd never pick it. That's why the Bible says His ministers are disguised as angels of light. He don't want you to know it's Him. Then what He does is He muddies the waters like He did with Eve and He confuses your understanding of the Bible with all kinds of outside philosophies that don't totally go away from the Bible. They take a little bit of the Bible and then add all their own stuff in it. That's exactly what he did in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Then what happens is he gets me and he begins to ruin my life. Okay? So, what we want to do now is take those principles that we learned and we want to move into what the Bible says about sexuality and mankind. This sex thing. This desire, this drive, is it bad? Is it all from the devil? 
Or did God make it? Did God put it inside of me? Is it a good thing if used the right way? Well, that's what we want to try to answer today. All right? Look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Okay, let me stop here for a minute. I want you to notice a couple of things in this verse. The Bible says, God said, let's make man. The word there is in reference to human mankind. Humanity. Not a, a male gender. Okay? So I want you to understand that. And you'll see that if you'll keep reading. In our image and in our likeness, and let them, plural, rule. So he's talking about humanity, not Adam. Humanity. I'm going to make mankind or human beings. I've made animals. I've made plants. I've created the landscape. Now I'm going to make human beings. By the way, this is the only thing he created which he says was made in his likeness and in his image. Everything else was different. But humanity was created in God's likeness and in God's image. Let's keep going. Verse 27. So God created man, mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And by the way, that's a privilege. We're the only part of God's creation that's like him in some form. Now, in the next phrase, he breaks down what humanity is made up of. Male and female, he created them. So, when God created humanity, He created humanity in two forms. We call them genders. How many genders did He create? Tell me. Two. There's not three. There's not a mix. There's two. Male and female. Now, can I just stop for a second and, and tell you this? We have literally thousands and thousands of people who this has become a life-altering and in many cases a life-threatening problem. I want you to know right up front my attitude about that and we're going to talk about it next week. They are no different than I am. I have many things in my life that are wrong that I've had to deal with throughout my life and will continue to have to deal with because I'm a human being that are life-threatening and could be life-altering if I give in to them. And I want people to love me and understand me and be patient with me and work with me until I can understand how to overcome that. Or understand that it's even something I need to overcome. And I want you to understand, we are dealing with a topic that most people are afraid to deal with. Because they're scared of it. Anybody who struggles with this in their life, or has it in their life and they don't struggle because they don't understand that it's even wrong, they need someone to love them just like I need somebody to love me. Everything starts with Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus Christ started in John 3.16 with, For God so loved the world. We'll talk more about that next week, about how to deal with it and how to approach that. But that's where it starts. So I say that because as we address what God says, I don't want you in any way to think that I am being critical, mean, judgmental, or in any way showing hatred toward anybody that doesn't believe this. Because God says if I hate anybody other than the devil, then I'm just as guilty as a murderer. I don't want to be that. Okay. So, does everybody understand that? And I don't want you to be that way either. Now, I believe what God says, and I believe what the Bible says. And I believe that anything that perverts this is wrong and is a sin. I believe that. But I love the people, no matter what their sin. And that's how we need to deal with this, okay? So, God says He made human beings, and He made them in two forms, a man and a woman. Now, let's keep going. I want you to look down with me at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Okay. Y'all are intelligent people. How do you do that? Sexuality. God created a man and a woman, and He said, I want you to increase in number. They can't produce trees. They can't produce fish. They produce other humans. That's sexuality. The Bible says God blessed them. And God told them to do this. So, is, is sexuality and that desire, did God make it? Absolutely He did. Is it a good thing? Absolutely it is. I want you to look with me at verse number 31. And God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. God made a man and a woman. He told them to come together and reproduce. He gave them the desire to do it. Because without the desire, it don't happen. He gave them that desire inside of their nature to want to do that. So they could increase in number. And then He said, everything He had just done was very good. So, here's the point. God's design for the human race is that sexuality and those desires are God-given, they're a good thing, they have a specific purpose, and when used within those specific biblical purposes, it is one of the best things in life. And it's part of God giving us life abundant. Just because Satan tries to use it as a tool to hurt people doesn't mean that God did not intend it to be a good thing. Okay? So let me ask you this. Are there other things in life that are good that Satan and the world in his portfolio can take and use in our lives to cause bad things? Are there other things? Absolutely. Sure there are. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are intended by God to be good. But that Satan and sin perverts and uses in the lives of human beings to make bad things happen. Okay? So, please understand, we don't want to take this sexuality issue and pull it out and set it over here all by itself like it's some kind of unique monster. It's really not. It's just one area where biblical principles are being applied that is so outward and open, and so we think about it more. But the same biblical principles are being used in all kinds of areas of life 
that we somehow look at differently on occasion when it comes to this. Okay? So, God's design for man. I want you to look at your notes. And I want you to see this. First of all, God's design. God gave man a sexual desire for a reason, and there's two reasons. Let me give them to you real quick. Number one, procreation. Genesis 1.28. God gave us this desire so we could procreate, so the human race could continue to exist. Okay? Number two, take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm going to show you a second reason why God gave it to us. For pleasure. You know, if sin didn't feel good and sin wasn't fun, Satan would never be able to sell it. That's just a fact. If it didn't feel good and it wasn't fun, he'd never be able to sell it. So, just because something was meant for pleasure, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be used in the right moral and biblical way. Way And again, that can be used in a lot of areas of life, not just sexuality. But we have to be careful that we're not being, we'll look at it in a minute, immoral in several areas of our life. Um, because that, that's a character issue. Okay? I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, now, verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Let me pause here because we don't have time to go through all this. Paul's not saying that it's a sin if you get married. Not what he's saying. Basically what he is saying is that if you don't have a family as responsibility, you can spend all your time in ministry serving me. You can live for God and spend all your time doing that. If you have a family, I personally believe that Paul had a family at least at one point. Because Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do we not have a right to lead about a wife and a family as other people do? So he mentions that. So I think that Probably, Paul at some point had a family. Okay? So, here's the deal. Paul is saying, if you have a family, later on he says, then stay that way. It's a good thing. But if you're not, you can spend more time in ministry. Okay? That's all that means. It doesn't mean it's wrong to get married. But I want you to see why he says it in verse 2. But, he says, since there is so much immorality, all right, here's a problem. Paul says to the church at Corinth, we got an issue. We have a problem with immorality. We're going to look at the definition of that in just a minute. But, but we got this problem. So now he's going to give a solution, a Bible solution to this problem. Look at it. But since there's so much immorality, solution, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. How many of you have ever read this chapter before? You ever read this before? How many of you ever saw that? How many of you ever thought about it that way? That it is a solution to sexual immorality. Now notice the parts of the solution. How do you do it? Each man should have his own roommate. Or two or three or four. Is that what it says? Each man should have his own what? Somebody tell me. Wife. 
In the English language, that word is spelled W-I-F-E. It means married. What's the next phrase say? And each woman her own sugar daddy. No, in the Greek, that's not what the word husband means. It means married husband. Okay, now, please understand. I, I'm trying to make this interesting for you. Okay, I'm not being facetious. The truth is, here's God's standard. There was an immoral problem, and that is a real issue. Common, and every one of us, every one of us has the potential to have to fight that same problem. Every, we're human. God gave us this for a good reason. Have you ever disobeyed any of God's laws before? Anybody here that's never disobeyed one of God's laws? I don't think so. We all have. All right, now, now hear me, because I love you. Is there any difference in this one and all the rest of them? Not a bit. Not a bit. What, what am I saying to you? I'm saying a lot of us have not done this. A lot of us have disobeyed this. It's not the end of the world. It's no different than me telling a lie. That's disobedience. It's no different than me being a gossip or me being bitter. Or me coveting. It's all a part of the fact that this is why we need Jesus Christ in our life. We are human. And we battle with sin. And it is a struggle. We all struggle with different things. This happens to be one of the things some people struggle with the most. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean I'm terrible. And it certainly doesn't mean God doesn't love me. God loves me no matter what I do. God loved me so much, He went to a cross and He hung there and He died and He said, Father, forgive them. And I was not even born yet. All of the terrible things I have ever done in my life or ever will do had not even been done yet. And He already said, I forgive Him even before He gets here. So, please understand, this is what God says we're supposed to do. Doesn't mean everybody does it. Doesn't mean it's not an answer. God forgives, He recreates, and He makes everything right. However, as a believer, what am I looking at? I want to know what God says is the right thing. What is the standard by which I measure my life? And if I'm not measuring, I need to get there. Okay? I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you what God says. Okay? Now notice what He says about this. Verse 4. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband in the same way. The husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. Notice he didn't say anything about the husband's wallet or the wife's wallet or bank account. It says her body. He's talking about sexuality. He's talking about the physical drive for fulfillment. And he says, I'm giving you a solution to the immorality problem that is in this church and in this community. The solution is, if you cannot control yourself, you need to get married. A husband needs a wife. A wife needs a husband. 
Because, among other things, that will help solve the immorality problem. Because there is a need. Let's keep going. Notice it says in verse 5. Do not deprive each other. In other words, don't not take care of each other. By the way, can I stop right here and just mention this? This physical need is not all about me. It's all about my wife. Notice. Husband, don't keep from your wife. Wife, don't keep from your husband. He didn't say, husband, don't keep yourself from what you really deserve. Ladies, don't keep yourself from what you deserve. Bless God, just take it. That's not what it says, is it? One of the ways Satan perverts this whole thing is the same way he perverts a lot of stuff. It's me, myself, and I. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. That's not what this is about at all. It's about the other and giving and loving and caring for that one whom you love. And meeting their needs, not yours. And we struggle with this as human beings. But notice what he says. Don't deprive each other unless you agree to do that. And only for a period of time. Then he says, then come together again. Latter part of verse 5. Then come together again. So, why? Somebody says we blame everything on the devil. Well, I don't, I'm not going to blame everything on him, but I am going to blame this. Because God blames him. Notice what he says. You need to come back together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice a couple of things here. Number one, Satan's directly involved. Number two, he's tempting. James 1, verse 14. I've got it in your notes here. What does that say? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own evil desires and enticed. Then when those evil desires conceive, they bring forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. That's how he works. He comes into our desires. He finds the ones we're weakest at, and that's where he works. Everybody's not weak at this one. Some people have weaknesses in other desires in their, in their life. So it's, everybody's not this one. But Paul is addressing this one. Notice what happens. Notice why he warned them. He said, don't stay apart too long. You need to come back together. Because if you don't, Satan will take that desire, that sexual drive that you have, And He will, because of your lack of self-control, because you can't control it, He's going to tempt you with it till you give in. Let me tell you this. The human anatomy is made in such a way that when that sexual drive is put into gear and begins to roll downhill, there comes a point of no return at which you and I are not strong enough to put the brakes on. We're just not. So you know the best solution? Don't ever put it in gear unless you're on a road that you ought to be traveling. Do 
Because at the end of that road, if it's the wrong road, it's a dead end with a brick wall that will destroy your life. And Satan knows that. That's why Paul said, you need to come back together lest the devil tempts you because of your lack of self-control. Okay? So why did God create this? Procreation and for pleasure. Second point in God's design is this desire can be used as a temptation just like any other human desire. We already talked about that. And real quick, let me tell you this. Uh, we've got just a couple minutes we're going to stop. Sexual temptation to sin is a reality. We don't have time to read Leviticus 18. It's actually in your study, in your uh, private meditation for this week. Hang in there with it because it's, it's a big passage of Scripture. But in Leviticus 18, in the Jewish law, God warns them about all different types of sexual immorality. Now, there's two things I want to point out. Sexual immorality comes in many forms. We want to pull out one or two and just dwell on those. But the truth is, this sexual desire and drive can be used by Satan in a lot of different areas. So it comes in many forms. And if you read Leviticus 18, you'll see all the different kinds of forms it comes in. And God says, I mean, He specifically describes them and says that you shouldn't do it. It's wrong. Okay? But notice the second thing. You'll also find in the first five verses of Leviticus 18 that it was practiced by those around them. You know what God says there? He says, I am the Lord your God, therefore you obey my laws. Do not do as the Egyptians did from the land where I just brought you, nor do what the Canaanites are doing in the land where I'm taking you. You do what I say to do because I am the Lord your God. What's the point? Everybody around them was doing it. Everybody was part of the culture. Everybody was doing it. What's the biblical principle? Just because everybody appears to be doing it don't make it right. God point blank said, I'm the Lord your God. You do what I say. Don't do like everybody around you is doing. Everybody around you is going to be doing what I'm going to tell you not to do. You listen to me, not them. Pretty pointed stuff, isn't it? Makes it tough, doesn't it? Who is the God of this world? Somebody tell me. Satan is. So the philosophy, the general philosophy of society is going to be undergirded and propagated by Satan out of his portfolio, which ultimately has as its result to ruin the lives of human beings. That's where it's going to come from. This just happens to be a real easy area to work in. It's an easy sell. And he appears to be very successful at it. Okay? So, God's design is that it's a good thing. We can have it inside God's parameters. It's a pleasurable thing. And God wants us to have it. However, it can be a huge source of temptation to wrong. Doesn't mean it in and of itself it's wrong. Satan can pervert it and use it to cause wrong. 
So please understand the difference. Sexual immorality is addressed in a lot of places in the Bible. That's number two in your outline. Um, and I, there are several verses here. I'm not going to take time to read them. Um, if you're listening online, the study sheet will be online. You can pull it up. For those that are not here today or listening to this by tape, um, you can pull up the study sheet and all the verses and passages are listed there. However, there are two words I want to define for us. It talks about sexual immorality and being sexually immoral. The word, the Greek word in the New Testament is the word pornos, where we get our word for pornography. So I wanted to know, how do we define that in Webster's Dictionary, in dictionary.com? How do we define these two words, moral and immoral? So here, I've given these to you. First of all, moral. If I'm a moral person, I am virtuous in sexual matters. In relating to a principle, I am relating to a principle of right and wrong. I am concerned with right and wrong. So a moral person is someone who is concerned about the principles of right and wrong to make sure they do what's right. That's a moral person. A moral person is not just somebody who doesn't have sex outside of marriage. That's one area of life. A moral person is someone concerned about doing right in every area of their life, not just this one. Right? So what is immoral? What is an immoral person? This is, to be immoral is to be in a state of violating moral principles. It is one who does not conform to or obey standards of morality. Basically, an immoral human being is one that is not concerned about right or wrong. It doesn't mean they're blatant. It doesn't mean they hate God. They're just not worried about whether it's right or wrong. Primarily, many of those people are governed by their feelings. If it feels good, do it. If I like it, it's okay. That's why you will have many proponents of um, immoral relationships or immoral practices will say, but if it was wrong, then why does it feel so right? If it was wrong, why do I have these feelings? I can take your feelings and flip-flop them in about five minutes. I can tell you a sad story about a small child who died with leukemia and have tears in your eyes. Give me ten minutes. I'll tell you a funny story. The tears will dry up. You'll be laughing your head off. If I as a human being can manipulate your feelings like that, why in the world would a human being base their lifelong morality on something as volatile as that. Well, that's what they do. If it feels good, do it. Okay? So that's where that comes from. Now, what is our problem? Last part. You and I, according to Galatians 5, have a sin nature. When we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live in our life, and He helps us. Okay? But we still have a sin nature. We still are susceptible to temptation, and we still have to battle that. Now, let me close with this. There are two, two illustrations of this sexual desire that was aroused inside of someone in the Bible. One responded properly. One responded the wrong way. Let me show you how it worked. We're just going to look at one. I'll tell you about the other one because I think you pretty much know the story of Joseph. 
But first of all, let's turn in closing to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. And I want you to look at verse number 1. This is the story of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon was the son of King David. Tamar was the daughter of another son of David, Absalom. So Tamar was Amnon's stepsister. Okay? They were stepbrother and sister. Alright? Verse 1, 2 Samuel 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Notice this. She was good looking. She was a good looking woman. Okay? Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. It seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. What does that verse tell us? The sexual desire that was growing inside of Amnon for Tamar became so strong, he physically became ill. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the end of the passage we're at, in verse number 9, Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Than for this drive to be lit on fire and burn on the inside of a human being. Because when that fire begins to burn, if it's not quenched, it will eventually destroy us. That's what's happening to Amnon. This desire on the inside of him has grown so strong, this, this want to have this that he cannot have, it's physically making him sick. Here's what happens, verse 3. Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, which, by the way, if you ever want to do wrong, you need a little encouragement, Satan's got plenty of Jonadabs out there. He'd be glad to provide you all you want. That'll show you how to do it. Jonadab, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Let me ask you a question. Was he in love with her or in lust with her? Lust. Hey, doesn't this same thing get used today? Hey, babe. I love you. We're 14 years old. We can't even spell the word. But I love you. <laughs> and if you love me, then you will go to bed with me. Because I love you. I love you. I love you. And if you love me, let's do it. Let me show you what happens when you do it. And it ain't real love. Keep going. Verse 5. Go to bed. Pretend to be ill, John and Deb said. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I can watch her and then eat it from her hand. Then the story goes on and she does that. King David, her father, or actually her grandfather, tells her to do it. It's okay. Go do it. I want you to look down at verse number 11. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. 
What about me? Where can I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He won't keep you from being married to me. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her. Uh Uh-oh. What happened to this love? Where'd it go? Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. What happened? Basically what happened was, number one, he had a desire growing inside of him to commit a sinful act that he did not deal with properly and he gave in to it and he committed the sinful act. Number two, it was all about Amnon. It had nothing to do with Tamar. It was all about Amnon getting what he wanted. Because at the end of it, what did he do with Tamar? I got what I needed. I got no use for you. Get out. Matter of fact, the Bible says he hated her. He hated her. Now, there's another story very similar. Huge difference in the ending. Genesis 39, verses 6 through 12. The story of Joseph. You know the story Potiphar's wife. Joseph worked in Potiphar's house, took care of everything. He walked in one day, and Potiphar's wife was a beautiful woman. And the Bible says David was a very, or uh, Joseph was a very handsome man. Potiphar's wife enticed him one day and said, "Come to bed with me." David said, "How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God?" She said, "But Potiphar's not around." You know what the point was? Here's the biggest difference. Amnon's situation was all about Amnon. Joseph's situation was all about God. How can I do this and sin against God? They weren't worried about Potiphar. He was worried about God. Well, time went by. The Bible says every day almost, she was trying to get him to come in. Almost every day. Finally, one day he's in there. Nobody's in there. She comes and grabs him. Now, let me ask you something. When a beautiful woman who has been trying to get you to go to bed with her all this time comes and actually touches you and puts her hands on you, I will tell you, I don't care who you are, something inside starts. you got two choices. Squeeze the gas pump tighter and put fuel to the fire, or run as fast as you can away from the gas pump and get away from it. What did Joseph choose to do? Now, wait a minute, Miss Potiphar. I think we need to negotiate and talk about this for a minute. Okay. Walk over, put his arm around her. Then, Miss Potiphar, let, let's discuss this for a minute. You know what he did? The Bible says he left his coat there and he ran out as fast as he could. And you know what somebody's going to say? Yeah, he got thrown in jail too. Why did he get thrown in jail? He got falsely accused. Do you know it was from that jail cell? that God used him to save the whole nation of Israel during a famine. God was going to put him in that jail cell one way or the other. He got there doing what was right. 
So you know what we read about Joseph? We read about how wonderful he was. Read the end of Amnon's life and tell me which one we would rather be. Okay? Very tough topic. Sexuality of mankind. God gave it to us. He intended for us to have it. And it used in the right way, it's a good thing. And it's the way God intended for it to be. Hebrews 13.4. Somebody says, when is it okay for us to do this? I'm not going to tell you. I will quote you a verse that you make the decision. Hebrews 13.4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. But the sexually immoral and adulterers, God will judge. That's God's principle. Now, we have to make our own decisions. They're not easy decisions. They're never easy decisions. Joseph's decision wasn't an easy one. But it was right. I'll leave you with this. Doing right is not always easy. But it's always right. And at the end of the day, God honors and blesses what's right. Heavenly Father, we face in our lifetime challenges and struggles from the enemy like no other generation has faced. We need Your help. Help us to have the courage and the strength to do right. And give us the compassion to love others and help them. In Jesus' name. Amen. See you, everybody. Have a great week.